Good evening, everyone. I am very excited to be back with you again. I'm going to start by talking about one of my favorite series of books, and that is the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. And a lot of people like this series of books, and they even made a movie out of a couple of the books. Um, and the books are about this, starts with these four kids in one family who go through a magical wardrobe into a magical land, and there's this lion called Aslan. And the whole thing is an allegory of, of, of Jesus and him sacrificing. In fact, the whole series is allegorical, and it's great to read to, to younger kids, but for older people, when you go back and read it, there's a lot of really good things to think about. <clears throat> Not as many people know the last book. The last book is called The Last Battle. And in The Last Battle, one of those four aren't there. There, she's not part of the book at all. She is referenced, though. Peter, the, the oldest boy, says, My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. And it's because, it, it, he says right after that, she's in, interested in nothing nowadays except nylons, lipsticks, and invitations. She always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. She was so interested in the things of this world, the things that she was excited about, that she thought those things from her childhood, well, those were just things that we played when we were kids, and they're no longer important anymore. Later on in the book, another character described her this way, and this is the quote that hit me so hard. It said she wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea was to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and stop there as long as she can. This hit me hard. Because, man, I remember back in high school, awkward geek, homeschooled kid, and I was just like, man, college is going to be great. I can't wait for college. And... College was, was nice, but man, it, when I got to college, in a lot of ways, it just didn't feel like it was all cracked up to be. Like, that's when I was going to be happy, but it just never fit there. And, and especially, I never had a girlfriend the entire time in high school or college. Shocking, I know, uh, but never had a girlfriend at all. And I remember specifically one night, all three of my younger siblings had dates on one night, and I was sitting alone in my bedroom. Everyone else was busy, and I just felt sorry for myself. I wanted that special someone, and, and longing and pining for that life that I wanted, and the, the plans that I had. But, you know, it's not bad to want things, but you, all of those things can be distracting from what you really should be doing. And so tonight, we're going to talk about serving God when you are. At what stage of life you're in right now, we're going to end the sermon this way, and it's really the thrust of it, is wherever you are, if you're a kid, teenager, young adult, retired, a shut-in who's streaming on, on YouTube, it doesn't matter who you are, you have ways to serve God right now that you will never have again in your life. 
And I find this fitting to preach on a January the 1st. And to, to think about how am I going to serve God this year? So we're going to start this sermon just by talking about the time to serve is right now. And the, the passage that comes to mind when you think of making the most of your time is the one that was just read in Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16. Pay careful attention then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Now, this is a, a verse that you can pull out of context and just throw up on a slide and you can make it say whatever you want. You know, I need to be busy with my you know, schooling. I got to make the most of my time. I can't be lazy. So I'm going to focus on that. I make, need to make the most of my time. Or it could be, I need to focus on my career or focus on that and just not be lazy. You can make it say that, but it has its context. So I want to scooch back to verse one of Ephesians chapter five. It says, so how is it that you make the most of your time? The context says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Be God-like. Look like Jesus. Act like Jesus. As dearly loved children and walk in love. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. How do you make the most out of your time? By becoming like God, like Jesus. He sacrificed himself for, for me. I need to be willing to sacrifice myself for God and for others. That's what it means to make the most of your time. The rest of the, the, the section here, verses 3 through 8, you look at verse 8, what it says, you, want, you were once darkness. You know that the word in isn't there? It doesn't say you were once in darkness. It says you were once darkness. Like you were exuding darkness before you become Christian. And, and these are the things that you used to practice when you were darkness. And you don't need to do any of that anymore. You want to know how to make the most of your time? Look at this stuff. Sexual immorality, any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as it is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognizes this. Every sexual immoral and impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have inheritance in the kingdom of God. Christ and of God, let no one deceive you with empty arguments for God's wrath is coming on the disobedience because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners for you were once darkness. All those things described how you used to be and you don't need to participate in those anymore. It goes on to say in the same verse, you were once darkness, but now you are light. Again, it doesn't say you are now in light. You are light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's talking about me. You want to know how to make the most of your time? Be the light. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing the Lord. So don't participate in the fruitfulest work, works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Now, right here in the middle of verse 14, this is where he's going to say, stop being lazy. Don't be lazy. It says there in 14, Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. 
We need to see the opportunities that we have right now and the doors that God opens for us right now as a unique opportunities, each one of them, and eventually those doors close. We need to make the most of the time and be like God and self-sacrifice. But there are sometimes things get in the way. The first big hindrance is like Susan was, you're always dreaming about the future and thinking about what's coming ahead of you. And you're always focused on your future. But like it says in Matthew chapter 6, this is the same context in the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you drink. God knows that you need all of those things. And he ends that verse with this. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those things that you're worried about, God's going to give them to you. They'll be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about your future at the expense of what you have to do today. Today, you have enough to do today to be so focused on what you can do tomorrow. And even if you make all the best laid plans, God very well may have a different plan for you. And those plans can change. In James chapter 4, it talks about this. Come now, who you set, who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city, spend a year there, do business, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Does verse 17 seem out of place? Does verse 17 seem like it fits in this context? To know to do good, but not do it, it's evil. Yeah, that's a great statement, but what does that have to do with the rest of it? When you're making plans about today or tomorrow, and you forget that God can change those plans, and you're so focused on tomorrow, you forget the good that you can do today. To know to do what's good today, but being too focused on tomorrow, James chapter 4 calls that sin. And it's something we need to be aware of, that always thinking about the future and longing for that future, you know, that boyfriend or that girlfriend broke up with me and my, my life was all wrapped up in them and now I don't know what I'm going to do. And you just want to ball up in your room and just stay there forever. But there's good that you can do today in spite of your plans changing. Next, and even if your plans do change, know that whatever that next plan is, whatever God has in store for you, is going to be the best plan for you anyway. You have the passage in Ephesians, oh, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And you think, that can't be right. Romans 8, 28, and I know a lot of Christians that bad stuff happens to, right? From, I mean, me and my wife, we lost a child. No other friends, good, solid Christians with cancer diagnoses. People who die randomly by a drive-by that they had nothing to do with. Bad stuff happens to good people, and how has God made that part of his plan well, again, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it also has a context. You skip back to verse 18. It says, I consider that the sufferings of this present 
time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. It may not be God's direct plan for that bad thing to happen to you, but he can use that for your benefit because what he has planned for you is glory. He has planned for us glory. And even if you have a life that's just full of suffering, it's not even worth comparing to what we have in store for us. So if your plans change, say if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. And if those plans do change, you be, and you be who you're supposed to be and you say, blessed be the name of the Lord and you move on. It's the second hindrance. Instead of living in the the future, you could also live in the past, about that past thing forever ago that happened to you. Now, the passage a lot of people bring up with that is Philippians 3, verse 13 and 14. But this verse, when it says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and pushing forward to what is ahead, Paul isn't talking about his past mistakes or the bad things that happened to him. What he's talking about is actually his accomplishments. There's not, no matter how many people that Paul taught to become the Christian, he's like, I'm forgetting all of that, and I'm just going to keep on pressing on. You can't retire from being a Christian. You can't say, I've done enough, and now I'm going to sit back and relax. It doesn't work that way. But also equally, you can't look at, Well, the reason that I am is because mom and daddy raised me that way and I'll never change. You can't blame people in your past or events, the things that happened to your past that keeps you from working now. You've got work to do. The the last hindrance, hindrance number three, is the the, what we'll call but first distractions. Instead of being too focused on your future or your past, these are things that, you know, I could serve God. But first, I need to do something else. In Luke chapter 9, verse 59 through 62, he said to another, Follow me, Lord, he said. First, let me bury my father. But he told him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't know if anybody here has ever said, I'm sorry, I can't go to my own father's funeral because I need to go preach. But that's what Jesus says here. You you think you have things that are more important than serving God, but the person who says, but first, I'll follow you, but first, isn't worthy of the kingdom of God. People could say, I would follow you, but I just don't have money. I need to spend the time working. I'm not going to go to church uh, on, on these certain days because I need more money to, to, to provide for the lifestyle that I want. It's really the idea. Or you say, I'll follow you, but first I need to finish school. I'm so wrapped up studying school that I don't have time to study my Bible or to make phone calls or go visit people. I need to study my studies. And once I'm done with school, then I'm all in for God. Or I'll have more time when the kids are out of the house. That's when I can really start being a servant for the Lord. Or I'll follow you, Lord, but, I'll, but first let me finish work. Let, I'll, I'll you know, be the elder. I'll be the person that you want me to be, but first let me retire. 
then I'll have more time to do that work. There's a saying that that I found that I really like. It says, when the enemy cannot destroy you, his job is to distract you. All of those things can be just distractions that get in the way of serving right now. And when you think about what those distractions are, it's the very thing that Matthew chapter 13, verse 22 is talking about in that parable of the sower, that third type of ground, the seed that was sown among the thorns. This is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, I know the context of John chapter 15 when Jesus says, I, it's a different allegory when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. But in that allegory, what happens to the unfruitful vine, or the unfruitful branches rather, in verse 2 of John chapter 15, is they're cut off. What keeps us from being fruitful it's a lot of those but-first distractions. It's some examples of that in the Bible. Demas fell into worldliness. It's a Paul writing, the aged Paul sitting in prison all alone. He's telling Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, Demas has been dead for, what, a couple thousand years, give or take, Right? He's been dead a long time. But is Demas destroyed? Well, no. His soul still lives on. I don't know his final outcome, if he ever repented from this or not. But what do you think he thinks of now, of that decision? You think the, the searching after the loving this present world, you think it, he would tell you that it was a good decision, that it was worth it? Well, of course not. No, it's an example of someone who gets distracted by the world. And Felix is the one who said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian, but come back another, another day. It's the inspiration for that song, Almost Persuaded. And that, that phrase in that song, some more convenient day, on thee I'll call. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. I had it. How do you think Felix feels now if he never became a Christian? He'd say, I was this close. Was it worth it to say some other time? Yeah, I know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I know I need to become a Christian, but some other day. You know what happens to people who always say some other day, some other day, some other day? They never make the decision at all. Now, in the, the... Parable of the vineyard workers. Now, the main point of this parable, you remember this parable where you have a vineyard owner who sends, uh, who, who goes and finds some day laborers and said, I'll pay you a denarius, and they go and work all day. And he keeps going back and finding people who aren't working, and he tells them he'll pay them at the end of the day. And there was one group that only worked one hour of the day, and then when he came, they, he paid them all equally. You remember that? And the main point of that is even if someone becomes a Christian late in life, and they don't serve God their whole life, but they wait until close to the very end before they even hear the gospel and then become a Christian, that they get to go to heaven. And someone who served God their whole life, they also get to go to heaven. And we can't say, well, that's not fair. You know, God can be generous to whoever he wants. That's the main point. But have you ever thought about it? In this story, who would you rather be? Would you rather be the people that worked all day 
or the people that only worked one hour. Well, that that's real, seems real simple, right? I'd rather get paid for only working one hour than paying to work all day. But when you apply that to what the parable's talking about, who would you rather be? Someone who lives a life of selfishness their entire life, full of whatever you decide that you want to do with your life, and then on your deathbed you say, I want to be baptized, and they lower you in, you and your wheelchair both into the water, and you come out, and then you die the next week. Do you think you would feel like you gained the system? I don't think so. I think you'd get to your eternal reward. God can forgive anyone, but when you get to that eternal reward, I think you'd look back at your own life as a life that was wasted. Because the only life that's worth living is the life in service to God. So why wait? The time to serve God is now. And, and related to that, if I don't do my job, no one else will. You could point to the really hard workers of the church and go, wow, look at all the work that we are doing. If you're never actually one of the people that work hard, well, those people are doing their work. Who is doing your work? If I don't do my job, no one else will. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 compares the members of the church as parts of a body and to show that each part of the body has value and we have different abilities. In this text, it says, just as the body is one and has many parts, just as all that parts of the body, though many, are one body, and so also is Christ. For we were all baptized into one spirit in one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many we all have equal value. We're all one in Christ. We were all baptized the same way, whether we're Jews or Greeks. And you can bring in other passages, say whether you're male or female or slave or free. We're all equal in Christ. But we all have different abilities. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. Well, that's silly. Is it not that reason any less part of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body... Is it for that reason any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? I think the easiest analogy I can bring up, I'm an extrovert. I don't know if anybody can tell that or not. I like talking to people. I'm a lot like my dad with two speeds, either off or on, and that's it. And, and, and I can be a little bit impulsive, right? Whatever my mind comes to decide to do, I'm off like a squirrel, all right? And just flittering from here to there. Now, if the whole church were like me, we would fall apart so quickly. If you were an introvert and say, I don't like talking to people and talking to visitors and strangers, that's really hard for me. And I just, I don't like it and I can't do it. You know that that's okay, to be an introvert, they get to go to heaven too, right? Those, you know what the church also needs? Is someone with a quiet demeanor, who's a really good listener, one-on-one, who makes those connections, who tells that, that, that extrovert, let's slow down and think about this, and here's some other things to think about. Like, but if the church were only that type of person, what would get done? You know, 
we are all valuable under Jesus and under God. And the very next verse says, God has arranged each one, each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. You have a place in this congregation. You have a role to fill with your talents, with your abilities, and you are desperately needed. You can't say to your hand or to your ear, I have no need of you, and you just chop it off. In the same way, you have value here with whatever talents and abilities that you have. So if I don't do my job, no one will. And and people of all talents are important. Now, some people are called to be leaders. The the main theme passage for this congregation this next year is in Ephesians chapter 4. And and in verse 11 and 12, it talks about that God gives these gifts. Now, you can take this two ways. That he gives these people the gifts and the abilities to be apostles, prophets, some evangelists pastors and teachers, that he gives those people the abilities to do that. And that's certainly true. But I really think what this context is saying is that those people are gifts to me. God has blessed me with apostles, with their writing, with the message of prophets. I've been blessed in my life with many evangelists. And those are gifts that God gives to me and and elders, godly elders, pastors and shepherds, to, to, to guide and, and teachers from the time that I was sitting in those little bucket seats. I had good Bible class teachers to train me. And the purpose of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 isn't just to let all of those people do the work. Those people are there, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ. But just as it is important for there to be leaders, the Bible is also full of critically important support characters. Support characters have a a very important role to fill. You ever thought that without Andrew, we wouldn't have Peter? Who is Andrew? We, We have almost nothing said by Andrew or things that Andrew did in the Scriptures. How much do we have that's said or written by Peter? A whole lot. Peter was important. But without Andrew you wouldn't have Peter. You know what Andrew did? He said, we found the Messiah. Come and see. It was just that simple. I would argue that anybody could be an Andrew. Do you have someone that you know and that you care about and you love and say, hey, I've got this friend. His name is Barry, and he'd really like to study with you and me. Could we have a Bible study sometime? Could you do that? Could you be an Andrew? Well, certainly, anybody can. It's just that simple. You don't have to be the Peter. You can't look at Peter and go, oh, I'm never going to be a Peter. If, if everybody was a Peter, boy, what would the church look like? He, got, he had foot-in-mouth disease. Is what he had all the time. He was impe- just, that was his character. But man, he was important. You know, Barnabas was a master encourager. His real name was Joseph, but he was so encouraging, they just started calling him son of encouragement or Barnabas. And those types of people are so vitally important to always look at the, pe- the person who's struggling or the person who's doing really well and just saying, keep it up. The Philippians, you know how they helped Paul? Every day they went to work. 
And then even in their deep poverty, they sent financial aid to Paul so that he could, instead of spending six hours a day or whatever making tents, he could use that six hours to teach people. How many people were saved because of that extra six hours that Paul got every day to teach people instead of make tents? Who knows? And Paul calls them partners in the gospel because of what they were able to do. All of these support characters are vitally important. And to be honest, the the Bible needs more people like her. Anybody remember who her was? He is a minor character. And even in the main story that he's in, he's like maybe the fifth most important in the story. In Exodus chapter 17, Joshua and Caleb were down, leading the people, fighting with the army. But the outcome of the battle doesn't depend on how hard they fought, but by a guy who's sitting up on a mountain, holding his hands up, Moses. And when Moses started getting tired, they gave him a rock to sit on. Aaron held up one hand, and the other hand was held up by a guy named Hur. He was a literal support character, right? He was supporting Moses' arm. But if he wasn't there to do that job, the Bible story could have been different. You think about those people in your life, and you ask, how can I make that person's job easier? If you're a kid, and you say, how can I make my parents' job easier? How can I make my dad's job easier? Or how can I make the elder's job easier? Or the preacher's job easier? Or the Bible class teacher's job easier? Or that that mom with a whole bunch of kids at her house, who I would argue has one of the most important jobs out of any of us around. We'll talk more about that later. How can you help and make their job easier? Because they've got an important job to do. We need more people like her. And sometimes that's all is needed is just a cup of water. Like in the invitation song that we're going to sing, just a cup of cold water in his name given, may the hope of some heart renew. Don't wait to be told, or by sorrow, like grudgingly kicking the dirt, or by sorrow driven to the work God has planned for you. Do your job. And sometimes it's just a cup of cold water. And Jesus says, if that's all you need to do, if you give one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. It doesn't have to be a big act of service. It could be small things. The, the anointing woman in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, she was committed by Jesus because she did what she could. One of the phrases my dad said all the time growing up was, do your best and don't worry about it. That's all that's expected of you is your best. If you did your best, I don't care what the outcome is as long as you do your best. And that's all that Jesus expects of you, too. You, and mothers can, can, again, can fall into this. All we did today, all I did today was just spend time with my kids. I didn't get anything else accomplished, but all I did was spend time with my kids. And sometimes that's the best you can do. And when it's the best you can do, that's all that God expects of you. So let's go on to the third. You are an example to everyone Now, in the last point, we're going to talk about, it's on the back of your sheet. We're going to go through and talk about all the different um, people on that sheet. 
and, and the unique opportunities that they have in this time in their life. But these are some things that are common with everyone, that you are an example to everyone, both young and old. They look at you and they see you, and when they see you, like little kids going around shaking hands with all the adults, it's not just the adults who see that, it's the other kids who see that too. And when they see your good works in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You're being an example to them and you're being an inspiration to them. And when Paul writes to Timothy, and Timothy in 1 Timothy is a very young preacher, he tells them, don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the, it's implied here, older believers than you are. You set an example for them of what it should be to, to, to have be an example in speech, conduct, love, in faith, and in purity. You are an example to everyone. But you know who you're the most example to? It's the people who are right behind you in life. I remember when I was in middle school and in high school, the people that I thought were the coolest people weren't the elders. They weren't the old people. And it's definitely not my parents or the people that are my parents' age. People that I looked up to the most were the college students. Man, they were cool. They'd come to church Sunday, Wednesday. They'd give those little Wednesday night invitations. They spoke with Bible knowledge. Man, I wanted to be like them. There was one time we were going to a potluck, and one of the guys had this like old model car, and he let me ride with him. And I thought I was king of the world. Why did I look up to the college students? It's because they were the next stage up from me. Now I'm a dad with uh, one son who turned five on Friday and another son who turns seven tomorrow. You know who I'm looking up to is the people who have kids that are just a little bit older than mine and wondering, how do you do it? <laughs> like, when is it that they mellow out when they're not trying to hurt themselves all the time? I'm looking forward to that time. Like, how do you do it? How... I want my kids to grow up to be respectful and respectable. And I'm looking to other parents who have kids who are that way, and I want to learn from them. And the Bible specifically targets one group of, the, of this, and that it talks to older women specifically in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at home, kind, in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. This is especially true for women. The Bible singles them out for a reason. It is so incredibly helpful for older women to teach women to do things that are so counterculture, but so biblical, that, that it is something that's needed. And no matter how old you are, you could be five years old, and you can have people looking, who are younger looking up and going, wow, he's the cool kid. And you could be five years old looking at the seven-year-old and going, wow, he's the cool kid. It doesn't matter how old you are. There will always be someone younger than you for the rest of your life. There will always be someone younger than you that's looking to you as an example. So be that example for them. So let's talk about, as we end here, some unique opportunities. Do you know that there are some things that a kid can do, a child? I'm talking about kids that can't even read yet. That they can do things in service for God 
that I, a 38-year-old, can't. If I took out a picture and some, uh, a piece of paper and some crayons and you were at home sick and I drew you the prettiest picture that I could imagine on that piece of paper and I mailed it to you, you might go, okay, this is weird. Why can't he color in the lines? He's 38 years old. But you know, if a kid does that, it hits different, doesn't it? When a kid was mindful of me, and they draw that pretty picture. That thing's going on in the refrigerator. It's something that's special when a kid is mindful of you. When I give someone a hug, it hits different when a kid goes around the church building giving hugs and shaking hands. Like, there are things that kids can do that adults can't do. And, and when you move up just a little bit in age, when you're a teenager... There are opportunities that you have as a teenager that you will never have again in your life. That when your friends who are also teenagers, that's the time in life when everybody's trying to figure out who they are as an individual. It's a time of their life that they are the most impressionable. You know Ariel Partain? She was a member here not too long ago. She came back and visited. You know how she became a Christian? fellow guy in high school named Colton McDaniel invited her to church. If you haven't talked to her about how she became a Christian, I encourage you to do it. Because that's how she became a Christian. And look at all what she's doing now. Another friend of mine, he's a, a preacher in Florida now, but he grew up, I think it was Chicago, it might be wrong, but he was essentially in gangs, had no father, had no clue who, still doesn't know who his father is, just horrible home life. But you know how he became a Christian? It wasn't somebody inviting him to church. It was some, one of his friends inviting him over for supper. And when he went to eat supper with that family, the dad was treating the mom with respect. And the mom was treating the dad with respect. And the kids were treating their parents with respect. And there was peace in that house. And he went, whatever they got, I need. And he started going to church with them. And, and now he, I don't know how many people that he has brought to the Lord. Because a teenager invited him over for supper. You have opportunities right now as a teenager. And you know what teenagers also provide? Energy. Don't you wish you could bottle up the energy of a teenager and give it out as, and take a few doses yourself? People who are older than that. You know, you can do things as a teenager you can bring smiles to people in ways that you'll never be able to do again the rest of your life. You have opportunities right now, so use them. You move on to the, the, the people who are single. Those single adults, I don't care how old you are in this category, you have opportunities in the kingdom that you may never have again. You know how much... I've, I've kicked around that idea of going overseas for a month or a couple of months to go spread the gospel somewhere that needs it. I'd love to, but I can't. You know why? Because I've got responsibilities. And uh, if I could find my... Yeah, there it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 33. Paul talks about the guy who's married. He's got to worry about it. Pleasing his wife, the person who's single, 
All I have to do is worry about pleasing God. You have the opportunity to go and you go, but I don't have the money for that. There are other people with money. Money comes to serve God. Don't worry about that. God provides that type of stuff. There are a lot of people like me who can't go that wish they could. They can help with that. You find opportunities to serve. And secret service, when you just go and do something for someone, go rake their yard and try to be sneaky about it where they never know that it was you that, that did it, like, you've got opportunity because you've got time. And, 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 like, young couples that don't have kids, man, you can work in pairs now. You've got a built-in teamwork to go do acts of service. Find that shut-in. Spend time with them and talk to them. Man, you find the person, the older couple who's been married for 67 years. There was a, a, a couple at church this morning who've been married 67 years today. That's a long time. Go spend time with them and ask them about marriage. You think that you might get the most out of it, but you're going to encourage them ever bit as much. You have opportunities to serve. And, and you think about... Parents who are with young kids, now, this is something I tell my wife, she has a more important job than I do. Even as a a preacher of the gospel, if I baptize thousands of people, but I lose my own family, how do you think I'd feel about my life? She has an important work to do. You can use being a mom as an opportunity to serve others. But man, your greatest work is, is your kids, instilling in them and training them those things that we were talking about when we were talking about kids. Those are, that's your job. And you got an important work to do. So focus on that first. Don't get distracted by other works just yet. But as those kids grow up, you can be, become parents of older kids. When you you have kids who are involved in sports teams and in school and in scouts and all of those things, you will have no more names than you will for the rest of your life. Not only do you know the parents of all of those kids, but you also know those kids too. You can influence others in a way that you've never had in your life beforehand or will afterward. When you get older, you don't have as many contacts, as many friends. You have an opportunity to instill in your kids these acts of service. So be busy doing it. It can be so easy to get distracted by all of those pursuits for your kids, taking them to different ball games and different practices and things. It, it can be easy to forget what I really should be training them to do. Empty nesters, those who are just recently retired, these are people like my dad who have both now time and energy at the same time. I don't know if you met my dad, but he loves projects. If he doesn't have a project, he goes crazy, always looking for a way to serve other people. He's like the neighborhood guy with the truck, you know, the person that he call, people call because he's the neighborhood guy with the truck. And those people, not only do they have more time than perhaps they've ever had in their life, you might even have financial ability to help other people to take burdens off of people in ways that you've never had before in your life. Because one day, it it comes for all of us, you become that last group where you're shut in and unable to do anything, but uh, you still have work to do, even if you are someone who can't leave their own home anymore. 
there's uh, Gary Henry was in a gospel meeting in Florida, and he said this. It says, it doesn't matter how old you are, your greatest work in the kingdom of God may yet be ahead of you. You could be that shut-in, but every single week makes a phone call to somebody who's struggling or sends that card or sends that note. One of the ladies at church in, in Missouri, she's 92 now. My, my youngest son raised his hand and made a comment in Bible class one, one, one time, and she wrote him a thank you card for his comment in Bible class. And boy, he beamed. He was so excited about that. Even if, if you think your work on earth is, my greatest works are behind me, you could say something that inspires a young person who then goes on to great works in the kingdom. So you still have value and work too. The time to serve God is right now. And if you don't do your work, no one else is going to do it for you. And I don't care who you are. You are an example to the people who are around you, especially those who are just behind you. And you have opportunities in your life to serve right now that you will never have again. Use those opportunities. Brainstorm with your family. Come up with other ways that you can serve God this year. Unique opportunities that you have. If there's anyone here who has never become a Christian, now is the time. Make that decision right now because there's room in God's kingdom for you. There's a way that we can help you be pleasing to God. We ask you to come to the front as we stand and sing.